Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of the Pandway Podcast. As usual, you can find our episodes on YouTube, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify or Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, you pick it, we're there. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Pandway Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Pandway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to thepandwaypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. I came up to to speak to the Corps cadets, and um, that's that's a phenomenal experience. You got to stay in the Buzz Aldrin room, though. I don't yeah. know. That's what we're talking about. We don't know where we're going to stay, so we might have to see if old Colonel Ruthie can put us up on campus. Some, That'd be pretty yeah. wild. Yeah, that uh, that hotel that they've got, that formal historical military hotel they got. Uh huh. It's. Um, it's obviously not the newest thing, which the Army's not known for, but um, it's pretty cool because um, I was always a fan of Buzz Aldrin and um, had met him in passing one time. And I got to stay that when I went to up there to speak to Corps Cadets, I got to speak to the students. And um, that was the room that they put me up in for the speaking engagement. And um, it was kind of funny because of the interview that they did with Buzz Aldrin, somebody had made a comment one time about, you know, he, he was known to be um, a heavy drinker. And, yeah. um, you know, he even did a couple of interviews and he was like, I'm sauced. So what? I went to the fucking moon. <laughs> and um, they, one of the, one of the interviewers asked him in the interview, like, um, why are you having such a, you know, why, why do you think after 50 years that you're still having such a hard time assimilating? And he gave probably the answer that I think if we all thought about it, we would give. He said, once you've walked on the moon, what else is there? I mean, to come back from that, dude. <laughs> Go walk and, on Mars, and, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you're that guy. I get, you know, yeah, okay, so fuck you. You walked on the moon, I walked on Mars. Um, <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, legitimately, we walked the Earth as giants. We did stuff. I mean, you think about what we did. We did in less than six months what the Russians couldn't do with 10 divisions in 10 years. Yeah. And every at every single turn, 
all of our sacrifices uh, were upended because of politics. But there's not a single time that we can point to, I can't, um, our training or our valor or our integrity failing us for any, I mean, I can't think of any of it, you know, in any of the services. And it just, it made a very profound impact when I heard that comment, because I think if a lot of soldiers, another guy said, um, we were having some drinks at a different kind of therapy session. Sure. And um, the SF therapy session, it, it involved a one-legged hooker named Pete, a parrot, and a donkey, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and um, But the guy said, you know what? He said, you know, I'm working in this great job. I think he's working, you know, this guy was like a... No kidding. One legitimately, because I, I like to brag on my soldiers because they've earned it. But this guy was a warrant officer, and this this guy probably he was on one of the DA teams, one of the commander teams. He probably killed more people than smallpox, and uh, he was just. He said, "You know what? I'll never be that close to other team members, or I'll never be that. Imp- I'll never have that much of a purpose in my mm. life. It's just." You know, it's just the three of us in a hide site, and then we're going to come out and ambush, you know, the or, or be the left flank security or whatever. And he said, when I didn't have that anymore, he said, I didn't know what to do with myself because I did that for 25 years of my life as yeah. a 40 year old man or yeah. excuse me, 48 year old man. So I think if a lot of dudes heard that, man, that's that's important because you, yeah, it's it's OK. You're not going to ever. You know, like the dudes playing in the Super Bowl. You know, you're never gonna, never gonna happen right. again. Right? <laughs> never gonna do Not it in that exact again. way, the, shape, does or form. Does it diminish you know? who you are now? No, mm-hmm. no, definitely not. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned Buzz Aldrin. I think one of my favorite, and it wasn't really an interview; it was more of a recording. Is when Buzz Aldrin was confronted by a flat earther. It was like outside something, and he punched the dude. <laughs> he was like 85 years old, and he decked this like flat earth conspiracy theorist right in the face. It was so good. <laughs> That's oh, awesome. man. I'll have to find that clip. It's and it's not when he was young. It was it was. I mean, because the whole flat earth thing is like resurged recently. Yeah. So like this was just some like young idiot, and he just like. <laughs> You just got knocked out by an 85-year-old man, dude. You got knocked out by an 85-year-old astronaut. I wouldn't go back and tell anybody. I hope that it yeah, doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's on the internet now. It's forever. <laughs> you have no legitimacy as a, as a human being the rest of your life. No, none. Yeah. none. Uh, except for the fact that unless you just phrase it as I got knocked out by Buzz Aldrin, you can just kind of like leave out when. Leave out the, yeah, leave out the flat know. earth stuff. Or leave out the fact that he was 85 when he punched you. I mean, <laughs> if you got knocked out by Buzz Aldrin, he was 25, man. I'd be proud of that. Mm-hmm. Well, even 85 is cool, you know. That's a good story if it wasn't for the... If you ran into Buzz Aldrin at a bar and you, and you taught... And, and then he hit 85-year-old Buzz Aldrin decked your ass. If, you, if you've never walked in a bar and said, it smells like good intentions and bad judgment in here, you didn't, yeah. you didn't really have a good time. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, well, man. we are we're sitting here with uh, honestly the inspiration for this entire project. If we're being completely honest, uh, we're sitting here with uh, Major Rusty Bradley, author of Lions of Kandahar, and uh, commander of ODA three thirty two. Correct, three thirty one. 
Yeah. Three, three, one. See, I get there eventually. I had two, <laughs> two out of three. Right. Um, and uh, Caesar Spurwingar. Yeah. So there's a lot of them. It's okay. There's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when we kind of started this project back in uh, September of 2020, you know, you know, Luke and I were jokes like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if we could get Rusty Bradley to come on the show? Um, and here we are, uh, Feb- January 2022, and Rusty has graciously agreed to join us to tell his story and then offer some insights about the future of Panjway and Kandahar. So, Rusty, we really appreciate, appreciate you joining it, Rusty. us. For sure. Thank you very much for having me. Rusty, the way we kind of always kick these things off is we kind of give you a chance to dive into your background, you know, why you joined the Army, why you chose the infantry, and then ultimately uh, Special Forces. Uh, and then we wanted to kind of go through a few of your, uh, your rotations previous to Medusa to kind of give an idea of what it was like uh, for your previous deployments to Afghanistan, and then obviously, you know, go from there. So give us a little bit about the history of Rusty Bradley. My wife would say this is perfect because all I ever need to make me happy is a captive audience and somebody who has to listen to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college, so... Um, I got a scholarship playing college football, uh, little um, university in the mountains of North Carolina called Mars Hill University. Yeah, I know Mars and, Hill. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, it was just uh, it, it was a interesting first couple of years right out of high school. Um, you know, being brought up with very blue collar uh, family in rural Appalachia. You know, you you didn't. You didn't, I mean, you didn't have everything, but you, you know, you had a roof over your head and clothes. And, um, my dad had always made me promise him that I would do at least one year of college because he knew me better than I knew myself. And if I went one year, then I would stick it out the whole time because I can't start something and not finish it. That's just how I'm made. And, right. um, so I went to college, graduated, um, Basically, begged, borrowed, and stole everything I could. Worked two jobs, played college football, and carried 16 hours a semester for five years. And because um, I was a true red shirt and ended up playing my junior year and senior year. And uh, I got out of college and I was like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? I, at the time, I kind of looked into going to like federal law enforcement or something. But back then, it was the early 90s. It was much more strict. You had to do a bunch of um, – you had to serve so much time in local law enforcement or state law enforcement before you could even apply and all this other stuff. So I was literally probably four months out of college working double shifts at a beer warehouse um, because – where I grew up in Asheville, it's mostly a tourist town. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, still trying to get my feet back up under me. And so I ended up running into an old buddy in a bar. Surprise. Hard to believe. <laughs> I know. And um, he had gone in. We had been in high school JRTC together. And he had gone in to the Army right out of high school and was doing hometown recruiting. And uh, he just said, you know, I was – woe in my blue over some beer and he said uh well hey come in you know we got this like loaner payment stuff you know join the army um and i'm gonna tell on myself because i'm um i'm one of those people i'm all about self-deprecating humor because i don't really see myself as anybody who's really accomplished anything i just did what everybody else did um right 
But anyway, <laughs> I went into the recruiting office to see him. And of course, he showed me all the videos back then of guys jumping out of airplanes and blowing oh, yeah. stuff up. And mm -hmm. of course, I, you know, he told me they had the, like this loaner payment program. And it was right after Desert Storm. So drawing down the military and they didn't want any, they weren't looking for officers. They were just looking for, you know, normal enlisted soldiers. And, uh, he said, yeah, he said, you know, I'll help you pick any location you want to go to in the world. And of course I was thinking, okay, well, Germany, South America. And he said, well, would yeah. you like to go to Hawaii? And I said, they got an army base in Hawaii. I was just so naive to everything. Right. <laughs> and he said, yeah, they got an army base in Hawaii. And I said, well, you know, what do I, if I'm paying back my student loan while I'm in the army, like, what do I do for a job? Like, how do I make money? You know, what do I do for, where do I live? And he goes, no, no, no. The army gives you a salary. They clothe you. They provide you with everything. You're stationed in that state and you serve as a soldier. And I'm like, but they're going to pay off my loan too? And he said, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, wait. So you're going to let me jump out of airplanes, give me guns and tons of ammo. You're going to let me shoot at things. And then you're going to give me a paycheck. And all I got to do is stay out of trouble for three years. He's like, yeah. It's like, <laughs> Six months Sign later. <laughs> And I took it. My dad was a Vietnam veteran, so I took my contract home to him. And he's like, "Well, mm -hmm. you see, you're a grown man. You got to make your decision." So, um, I joined the army and went to uh, cohort. I, I went into as a program where, as a college graduate, you went into basic training um, as a private first class. And then when you graduated AIT, you were a specialist, and you went to your first duty station as an E4. And um, got to Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, and it was, it was like, it was a combination of several things that I needed some regimen in my life. Of course, football had always been my, you know, that type of academic regimen, work regimen, and I was used to hard work. So for the first time in my life, I was being paid for doing stuff that I really thought was fun, like repelling and you know, running through the jungles and learning how to navigate. And I was probably the biggest point man in the 25th infantry division, but, uh, you know, I loved walking point and mm. it, I just loved being a soldier and learning about being a soldier. And one of the most important things my dad told me before I came in the army was he said, he said, if you ever get the chance to be an officer, he said, the only good ones we ever saw were the ones who had been enlisted first. He yes, said, you don't sure. know what it means to be a soldier until you've been a soldier. Absolutely. And that that really rang true for me throughout the the tenure of my career. And then the first school, I'll never forget, the first school I ever went to was air assault school. And mm. it was just like, it's just you competing against you. Right. There's, I mean, you're either your greatest cheerleader or your greatest enemy. And you're going to determine where you go in life on how hard you push yourself. And um, I graduated that. And then, like, stuff just started coming faster and faster. Um, I went to, like, ranger school as a specialist. And, wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was – it was like – it was such a learning point and value for me because you had to – like nobody's going to give you nothing. Everybody's going to no. make you earn either a tab or your place in line, or there's a standard. 
And that's right. one of my greatest frustrations with the services now is they're just willing to politically wrap the standards around whatever is the flavor of the day, whereas sure. the fact that if you have a standard and everybody has to achieve it, then that's the benchmark for moving up or success for whatever it is. And right. that's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what your race, color, religion is. You have to meet and exceed that standard to be successful. Um, so you would have gone to ranger school. This would be mid-90s? Yep. I was yeah. from Hawaii. They had like a murderous pre-ranger program. So you had to go to a battalion oh, sure. rip, a division rip, and a division mm -hmm. sustainment before you ever got to ranger school. Mm -hmm. So you had been through like 10 weeks of training before you ever got to ranger school. When, so when you – it's it's kind of funny because when you – learned the technique of overtraining, which is one mm -hmm. thing I think the services usually do pretty well, is that you get to the point where, you know, if you're used to having to do 65 and 75 push-ups and sit-ups, then when you go there and you have to do 52 and 62, and even though the ranger instructor is like one, 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 two, two, three, four, five. Right. You get to 52 and you're like, okay, well, that's not that bad. I'm used to having to do about 100 to get to 65. <laughs> right. Um, but those little lessons were the stuff that just kind of Velcroed themselves to me as I went along in life. And then, um, you know, I, I, I got to do things that I would have never gotten to do. I got to go to Malaysian tracking school. I got to go to, you know, sniper school. I got to go to foreign weapon schools. I got to go to, like I said, airborne school, air assault school. Um, funny and story. I ended up going E4 or an E5. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I made E5 in two years. I think most of that was because of my college, but by the time I was an E5, I had my EIB, had been to ranger school, sniper school, air assault school, airborne school, like Malaysian tracking school, like foreign weapon school. Um, it's quite the spread. What was the tracking? Now, now you couldn't do that in eight years as an enlisted guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I truly don't know how it happened other than it was just one of those. It was a peacetime army. And they right, have so many true. slots, and then the way that they slide, they divide those slots up is really on a, almost on an OML list. So the way they did them back then was the more successful you were at completing schools, you know, because as a enlisted guy or even a junior NCO, when your team leader, squad leader, platoon sergeant sends you to a school and you graduate, then you know it looks good on them as well, and. Mm -hmm. If that sort of internal training and feeding that desire. Pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to be very honest, I give a shout out to a good friend of mine named Jesse Markham. We've known each other for almost 30 years now. He was my very first, <laughs> when I showed up to Schofield barracks in Hawaii, that was back in the day when you lived in the barracks, there was like CQs. You had to sign in, sign out. You had to get permission to go on pass on the weekends <laughs> Um, right. you know, so many things have changed and you had room inspections on Monday morning sort mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, your squad leaders, platoon sergeants would come, you know, come through and inspect your rooms and, you know, it, it wasn't a, 
it wasn't like the Playboy Mansion where you just left your crap in your room, you know. Right. I mean, they had standards if you were going to be allowed to use government facilities. And anyway, this guy was like, he was the anomaly from the Ranger Regiment. He had been, you know, enlisted in the 75th Ranger Regiment, gotten out, been a police officer, and then come back in the Army. And he walked in and he was from Oklahoma, not an ounce of body fat on him, 35 years old, weapon squad leader, and he was in the middle of training for the best ranger competition yeah. at 35. Jesus. So doing PT with him after playing football as an offensive lineman was hell. Yeah, because back then the the you know the when they first came out with the Taft's condition standards and time hack, yeah. it was we're going on a slow run at a moderate pace, right face, and you're gone. <laughs> seven minute miles later. Yeah, yeah, seven minute. Well, with him, I mean, it was like six six twenty, and it was just brutal. But you see, you, you know, you get in that environment where it's all tough love. Like as long as you're pushing yourself, they're judging you based off your heart, your capabilities. Um, I, I just, I think God put all the right people in my life to prepare me for the challenging, uh, situations that I have faced. So, so when did you start to think about going, did you go OCS or how did the, how did your transition officer go? So <laughs> interesting thing happened. I, um, I wanted to get like the second or third time EIB came around and I had already reenlisted twice to get the bonus stuff for being a ranger. So I was looking at like my fifth year, sixth year in the army. And uh, basically because I'd done everything else left on the island to do, there was nothing like I was going to get put on the EIB committee or get stuck on rear detachment detail. And I didn't feel like that was very fair. So I was very enamored with, you know, with the Ranger Regiment and SF and with CAG. And um, I, I knew that one of those was going to be my next sure. challenge in life. And um, I wanted to go, they have a scuba school at, at in Pearl Harbor at Ford Island. It's a Navy dive and salvage, salvage school. But not knowing any better, I uh, I went to my first sergeant and said, hey, first son, I want, I want to try to go to this scuba school. And he never looked up from his desk. He's you know, super fit Hispanic guy. And he basically said, uh, Bradley, if you can get a slot, go. And not knowing anything about anything, I picked up the push button phone on the CQ desk and started calling numbers and ended up talking to this lady at this organization called NavSpec Warcom. <laughs> and, and the gist of her conversation was, honey, I don't know if this is a joke, but if you can get a slot and I'll get the U S Navy to pay for it. <laughs> and I was like, all right, then here we go. So, I got permission, hopped my happy little ass in my pickup truck, and I drove down to Fort <laughs> Island, and I drove straight to the scuba school in uniform, had, had my starches on, walked in, 
just started walking around the school and I'm running into these instructors and most of them are buds instructors or seals from first group right, right across the other side of the airway. And they're like, who is this moron? And uh, I said, Hey, I'm this- looking for the NCOIC of the commander. And they're like, okay, well, that's what you want. I go in, <laughs> knock on the door, you know, and I don't understand any of the terminology, you know, Pearl and, and Hickam air force base is a pretty dead gum uh intimidating place because hickam is like perfect it's like being at a golf course or a resort with Mm. you know billions of dollars in fighter jets and the navy is just immaculate and um but it's all new you don't know anything about it so i'm knocking on this door and i you know this guy screams who is it and i said you know i might have even been a Sergeant Bradley, permission to enter. And I go in, post myself, salute, and it was the master chief of the school. And his name was Master Diver Reese. I'll never forget him. He had to be about five foot six inches tall, and he looked like something out of a Navy diver poster or a Navy SEAL poster. I mean, he was like as wide as he was tall. He benched like 400 pounds. He literally had been run over by a boat and had a boat prop. Oh my God. who had cut his forehead <laughs> straight open. And this guy oh, looked at you and you only thought about not pissing your pants while you're standing there in front of him. And he yeah. was like, what do you do? You know, you are so, and I'm like, Hey, so out of line right now. <laughs> I said, this, this lady at this organization, he goes a lot of expletives. And he said, all right, I'll fix this. He's standing outside. He makes some phone calls and you can tell he's like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Okay. You want to give him a shot? I'll give him a shot. Calls me back in the office. He said, you better find somebody to be ready because we start, and this was like maybe Thursday afternoon. He said, we start on Monday. And he said, you got to find a buddy to go through with you. And if you both don't graduate, you don't, neither one graduate. Okay. Oh shit. Eight weeks later. I don't know how, but somehow we ended up completing Navy Diving Salvage School. And then we went on to do our Dreger training and get our, not only that, but our combat diver stuff. And um, I made E5 and it was just like the opening of a whole incredible, you know, new world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I I literally fumbled into a lot of success. <laughs> just, you know, he who dares wins, man. Sometimes guess, you just yeah, got yeah. kidding. <laughs> Sometimes the answer isn't no. Yeah. <laughs> Col- Colin Powell said one time, I heard in a speech, uh, I think he came to, um, I came to Fort Benning when I was going through OCS uh, about my seventh or eighth year after I got permission to go to OCS from Hawaii. And he said that he, the the army is structured. So somebody, no, somebody in life is always going to tell you no. It's your choice as to whether you accept that no. Mm. Now, of course, that's easy to say when you're a four-star general. Sure, right? (laughs) (laughs) You don't get a lot of responses when you tell somebody no at that level. But it it really kind of sank in. Mm. So I just ended up. Uh, to be very honest, just, I mean, if you think it's right, do the right thing, you know, 
don't, I mean, don't be afraid, you know, the, the two things that you learn are the accomplishment of the mission and welfare of the men, and they're in that order for a reason, but you got to be able to, you know, take care of your men. And there's times that I asked for things or tried to do things and got crushed. And there's times that I was like, you're going to let me do that. Really? Okay. <laughs> so, so you, so you went to OCS at Benning. I did. Out of, um, from nineteen ninety seven. Okay. I had gotten my wife and I had met when I came home from ranger school. I was on my, that's another crazy story. Um, I was on a hold. I was on the holdover status at ranger school and I knew a guy um, who I had been in Hawaii with that was working at fourth RTB at Fort Benning. And he put me on a, um, it was a holiday weekend, but he put me on a four day pass that linked it all, you know, the long weekend. So I ended up with a seven day pass to go Mm -hmm. home and see my family in uh, Asheville. And um, anyway, met my wife by chance. And then a year later, um, we ended up getting married and, um, she came over to live for about two She lived, we were in Hawaii for two years and, um, funny story. We got deployed to Japan when I was at E5 and this was like my second time going to Japan. We'd been to Austria. I mean, we traveled all over the world doing cross training with other countries and, uh, <laughs> We were way up in Amori, Japan, like 90 miles from Russia, doing Arctic weather training. And we got this call, and it's freezing cold, you know, blizzard snow, and we got this call, hey, they want to do a battalion formation. Well, the battalion sergeant major battalion commander showed up, and I'm a squad leader at this point. And I'm bitching. I'm like, who's stupid effing idea was do this in the middle of the night in a damn snowstorm the soldiers are going to get frostbite somebody's going to get lost blah 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 well guess what it was a promotion ceremony for me to e6 (laughs) 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 you know when you have that thought you're probably not saying anything it'd probably be good to follow that yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's funny but they still um I had some really good battalion commanders. As a matter of fact, Colonel Caslin, who just finished up as like the head of uh, West Point, and um, I'm not sure which major command it was, but he was the battalion commander. Oh wow! Mm. Small world. Yeah, very small world. <laughs> That's wild. But um, so you uh, did OCS? I, got, I, got, and... I put in a packet, and yeah, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Oh, yeah, okay. No, I was just gonna say you did OCS and. And went down the officer track. So how long were you an officer before you started INSF? Well, I you guess know, the other question is, did you were you able to pick infantry and remain infantry out of OCS, yeah, or how did that true. work? Yeah, that's funny because there's actually a, there's like a drug deal way that all those MOSs of get moved around. <laughs> yeah. off of it's hard hard to believe, right? Because um, you're, I mean, you come in as infantry. I mean, obviously the expectation is that you leave as infantry, but that's not always the case. No. Right. Um, so what happened was around that time that I got promoted to E5, I started submitting packets to go to uh, SFODD selection and to uh, Green Beret selection. So my name was already in the circular for people that were interested to go. 
Sure. Yeah. And we had one of those foreign deployments where <laughs> my chain of command really put up a an argument because I was supposed to be going to uh, SF selection and didn't get to go. They mm. and this obviously this is pre GWAT. So that's when, like I said, about four years when I was in was around the time that I wanted to either get in regiment or get an SF or, or try to get in um, at the unit. And uh, it just never timing, never, pan, you know, and then I got married. Timing never panned right. out. And I put in a packet to go to officer candidate school. I kept coming. I would come home every day just bitching about my platoon leader, my company commander. Now, of course, like all the stuff that they're learned to do at that infantry officer level 101, we were forced to learn to do as PFCs when when even trying to be able to go to ranger school. So giving you know you you learn to give op orders off the top of your head, you know warning orders. Like you're you're ingrained and trained for all those basic functions. And I was coming home and complaining every day. And my wife's like, "Look, you got a college degree, do something about it or shut up." And uh, I was like. It makes right. a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I I dropped a packet to go to OCS, and it just so happened that I got a set of orders, but it was to go to, um, I think it was 5th or 6th RTB down in Florida to run the hmm. scuba locker because they were so <laughs> short of combat divers. Oh, and yeah. that is, and it was an actual E7's position. So me getting promoted into it as an E6, um, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to get rated until I was an E6P, but that's sure. like a dream job, you know, running the scuba yeah. locker down there for, you know, recovery and all that sort of stuff. Um, well, then my orders two weeks after that, my orders came in for OCS. Oh, okay. So, um, we talked about it. We prayed about it. And then we just said, hey, you know, this is the next big step for us as a family together. Well, my wife's eight and a half months pregnant when we get our orders and move from Schofield Barracks to Hawaii. Right. And then um, as soon as I get there, there's a problem with my orders, i.e. Oh, a problem course. as in they can't find them. So I'm afraid, yeah. hey, I'm a unassigned E5. I'm going to end up in third ID. And so I went straight over to the Ranger Regiment and called sniveling to all my cronies that I knew out at the RTB training facilities. And I was like, hey, can you guys work something in for me to get in over at the Ranger Regiment? And um, I had a, I ended up getting an interview with, at the time, Colonel Stan McChrystal and Sergeant Major Hall. And that was in 99. And um, so anyway... During the couple of days that period of time that I was there, they said, you know, hey, you, your, your orders came through. You're going to go to OCS, you know, put in your ass packet and then come to us when you get done. Sure. And um, so that's what I did. I went to officer candidate school and then went and um, they let me blackbird over at the Ranger Regiment for whatever the five or six months will, that was while I was waiting to go to IOBC. And uh, they sent me to the Lurse Leaders course, and I got, you know, satisfied to be uh, in reconnaissance platoons and you know, on Lurse teams and stuff like that, which was all stuff that I'd already been doing, sure. you know, when I was 
and the infantry and then scout platoon and the lurch company and then you know but now you're getting to do it over ranger regiment exactly right and then um when i went to iobc and completed iobc i think that was around the time that when i went to report back kind of the requirements had changed and they said, look, you have to, in order to come straight back, you can't go straight into the regiment because you should, you should have been assigned here as an NCO as a prerequisite for you to come directly in as an officer. And okay. since you didn't, you're going to have to go to a conventional unit, serve two years before you can come back. Right. So I got assigned in December of 99, I got assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division and, um, about six months later, I burned in on a parachute jump on Holland DZ, and um, it's just an accident that should have killed me. But by the grace of God, I didn't get. I fractured some vertebrae in my neck, and um, I think literally I had my spinal surgery, and then was on almost like five months convalescent leave. But when I came off was the all i remember it was the first week of september mm. in 2001 and i had just come off my refresher jump into the battalion headquarters and they said hey lt did you see some asshole crash an airplane accidentally into one of the twin towers and i was like that that ain't yeah that ain't right so um, and then, of course, we all stood in the in the talk in the situation room. And when the second one hit, you know, of course, everything else happened with uh, the Pentagon and then Pennsylvania. And then we knew we were at war. So from that moment, we literally started like it was game on. What do we need to get prepared? And, and of course, we had been through eight years under Bill Clinton cutting everything in the military to the absolute bone. So by the time our first deployment came around to Afghanistan in, um, in 2002, we went in right after we went in to support the 101st right after operation Anaconda, because it got a bunch of equipment and, you know, guys shot up really bad and they didn't have near enough forces on the ground. And, um, we were trying to expedite getting over there to reinforce them as quickly as possible. And, um, I was at HACXO at Bragg, and I mean, like by regulation, you're supposed to have 30 days of POL on hand, and the motor warrant that worked for me as a Brigade XO, or the HACXO, he was like, you know, we don't have it. <laughs> so I I did what I thought, you know, when in doubt, what would John Wayne do, right? So I took the impact credit cards, and I was like, hey, you go out and you buy every part, <laughs> For every back then, we didn't have we didn't have anything but those um, those John Deere Gators. Oh yeah, and all the Gators from Anaconda had been shot up. So I had them like send me pictures and stuff from over in Kandahar of all the damaged equipment and everything else. And we literally went out and just blew the regulation out of the water and purchased several hundred thousand dollars on our five thousand dollar limit or whatever it was credit cards (laughs) and uh, the funny thing is is that cid actually showed up in kandahar on the deployment to investigate me for those purchases (laughs) 
Well, there's the money there, and there it is. There. Yeah, exactly. And and that's a, that kind of what I did. I was like, okay, let's grow the motor pool, and I'll show you where the money went. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, it was just so completely asinine that they would – but that's just the – that's just the reflections that you get from a peacetime army where somebody's somebody war tourist. Somebody wants to show up and make their name, you know, right. doing one thing and then they come rushing home and it makes their career. Mm-hmm. So your, your first stop in Afghanistan was Kandahar then in 2000, I guess that'd be 2002. All eight of my deployments were in Kandahar. That's incredible. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's nice. Wow. Me and probably four or five other officers saw the war through the entire continuum from about 2000. Well, I know it went on longer than 2014, but um, the the peaks and valleys that you can kind of say from 2002 when we had nothing, not Mm -hmm. nearly enough forces on the ground to, you know, 2014, when you have that transition from soft control of the battle space to, you know, U S general purpose forces and then ISAF forces and then all the different ISAF commanders coming in and out. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we, we saw it all, but my first appointment, if I remember correctly, is from like, Early June two th- or May or June of two thousand and two to February two thousand and three, and while I was over in Afghanistan, and I saw number one, I was a sociology major, so it's just studying societies, languages, and cultures, and sort of stuff. You grow up reading dime store novels because you don't have cable in your house you, you know you get kind of that sense of adventure for what's the world like and that's what i studied in college so now i'm in another country after september 11th i think we went in with the second wave of guys that were in there or something like that and um you see that it's gonna this thing is not gonna end anytime soon and a lot of the guys that i had been prior service with that we'd been in scout platoon together or they'd gone on to the ranger regiment. Now these guys are all in the Rangers or they're in Delta or then they're in SF. And I'll never forget walking through the, the old uh, airport, the original airport there on Kandahar airfield before they closed all that off in uniform as an 82nd, you know, high and tight paratrooper. And I hear this guy cat calling me and um, it was Mikey Duskin and, um, he was like, well, he's look, looking at me like, what is wrong with you? Like, now you're an officer. I mean, you, you're following the rules. Like, what's, <laughs> what's, what's going on with you? And um, right. anyway, I just went over to visit him and talk to some of the teams that were there at the time. And I just made the decision while I was in Afghanistan that I wanted to be in group. And, you know, here's all these guys that look like everybody's trying to portray today, you know, tattoos, ball caps on beards, you know, professionals, they do. I mean, you don't have to tell them to do something once. If they don't know what they're doing, they're going to sink themselves into it to learn it better than anybody else could possibly learn it in a short period of time. Just true professionals. And, uh, I just realized that that was the next, I felt like professionally that was the next 
progression for me personally, well, personally and professionally. And um, I made a few phone calls and said, hey, put in your packet while you're in Afghanistan. So I literally started training for selection in Afghanistan. And I know for, was it, I'm assuming it was the same way back then for officers. There's like a very narrow window that you can go to selection, right? You have to be a certain year group. And then well, they, see at the time, remember that was during George Bush and Don Rumsfeld. So what sure. they did was they sent out a message to the entire U S army and said, we are desperate for prior service, prior enlisted officers in SF primarily from combat arms backgrounds. And you will not stop them from going to selection. So that wasn't greeted with a very well, very good reception, but, um, conventional commanders don't like losing their people to, uh, Oh no, we we laugh about it today. I didn't laugh about it much. The battalion's operations officer, uh, or excuse me, the brigade operations officer at the time told me, I hope you get selected because you don't have a job when you come back. (laughs) That's what he's looking out for you. <laughs> hey, I mean, that, uh, was, that was just more motivation for me to get selected. Yeah. And yeah. the thing That's was. The guy is, too, see on the other side. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he ended up getting uh, thrown out of the military in disgrace. So good on him. But yeah. um, <laughs> no, I mean, all the stuff that they were asking you to do to show your basic proficiencies, like. When you can learn to navigate in the jungle, like in Hawaii and the gulches and the ravines and, you know, like map and compass, basic fundamental soldier skills, one-on-one, like you have to master that stuff. And um, I, that was probably one of the only super great comments that any of my teammates ever gave me because there was a couple of times when we got into some places way over on the Paki border that we got ambushed and, and sealed into the valleys and I would just literally take those old Russian maps and you know the jog maps that we had mm-hmm. and I would comp and map or compass and, and map and find the old Mujahideen roads that we knew were supposed to be in there from the Russian times that you know we were pushing supplies to the Mujahideen from Pakistan you know, mm-hmm. across the mountains. And that's how, literally, that's how we escaped those valleys uh, mm-hmm. on at least two occasions was being trapped up in there and just mastering land navigation. Now, of course, some of it was riding on the side of a mountain with everybody in the truck sitting on the uphill side to keep the truck from flipping over, uh, mm-hmm. but we got out. Mm-hmm. So when you, uh, you went into selection and then, you know, what what was when was your like talk us through your selection process and then when you got to your group and then your next deployment as an SF officer? Wow, there's you guys keep it's you guys there, must huh? know my life story because every time you ask these questions, there's a, there's a crazy story to be had. <laughs> so <laughs> so I came home and like at the time our our manager in the even in the infantry was the ranger branch right so mm. you know you basically took whatever assignment they gave you or you were going to end up in a year on a company tour in korea that's just kind of the way it went and um i called the sf guy because i had submitted my packet and said hey you know he said hey look man you just got home from diploma you want to stay home and make some babies you want to take a little time what do you want to do and i said nope i've been training 
I'm ready to go. I want to go. So five weeks after I redeployed home from Afghanistan, the first time I went to SF selection and um, I made it through. And then um, again, talking to the branch manager, he said, hey, you know, we got to, um, you got to get you, you know, captain qualified and send you to the captain's career course. And, um, you know, when do you want to do that? I said, put me in the next one. He said, well, he said, I'm not too sure if you want to do that. He said, you're, you're six foot one to 225 on a light day. And he said, because of how the Northern Alliance operated when the teams first went in, they didn't have a lot of armor training. So they didn't understand not only how to do armor operations, but armor logistics supporting an insurgent force that has armor to be able to be used if you're going to support them and resupply them as a right. force multiplier. So they wanted Green Berets to start going to the armor career course. So that's where Gosh. they sent me, Fort Knox, <laughs> and Bear greased oh, my God. hip to slide my big old self down inside an M1 Abrams tank. Oh, no. That sounds terrible. Miserable. <laughs> <laughs> And we, and we were, were experts on being uh, unwilling armor unwilling participants armor as mm. infantrymen in an armor company. Oh, yeah. oh so. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're used to sleeping on the ground and looking for booby traps and everything else. And you get these, you know, you get with these armor guys and they're like, we don't get off the tank. Nobody. That's before yeah, dismount. That's before dismount. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you got to do when you go to the bathroom? They're like, MRE box off the back of the tank. <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. I see how you roll. Um, but yeah. anyway, I, I finished that and, um, spent a couple of months in Fort Knox. Unfortunately, I was again away from my wife and, um, I finished the captain's career course and, um, they said, okay, when do you want to start the Q course? I said, you know, I, I want to get in this fight. So when, right. you know, when can, when can I get Tomorrow. in? Well, same thing. It was like three weeks after I'd gotten back from um, Captain's Career Course. I went straight into into SWIC, into the Q Course, and you had to do SUT, which was basically a a small modified ranger school, if you will, for sure. two months, and then um, you had to do through, you know your officer qualification course, and you had to do SEER school, and you had to go to uh, Robin Sage. And um, language school was the last part. Mm. And did you get to, do the, did you get to go to Monterey for that, or was it at? Uh, <laughs> no. no, I was one of seven dudes that got selected to go through the first Pashtu training. Mm. Enlisted and officer, and at the time, Pashtu it's still a very rural tribal language with like twenty different dialects. Yeah. Um, but they were like, that's what we want you to learn. And we had literally seven and a half months, no workbooks. We had like three different instructors from different parts of the country trying to teach us the alphabet. But there was no reading and writing. The oral speaking was so hard because mm, you right. didn't know the dialect of the person that you were going to be talking to from Monterey. You know, what you learn over time is that guy's speaking Dari. He's not speaking Pashto. Right. And you're like, how am I supposed to know this? So I did manage to get the, I have a little red pencil box and, you know, my house is a square box where I sleep 
and um, I wasn't going to ever order any duck pate at the embassy, but, you know, <laughs> I could left flank, right flank, you know, fire your weapons, look here, look here, you know. Sure. And um, it paid off. Um, so I think I was, <laughs> I was literally like two or three weeks from graduating from language school and getting assigned to a team or getting assigned to a group. And I wanted to go into group, third group really bad. And um, I knew guys from third group that were trying to help pull me in. And they said, look, you know, because of our uh, global area of responsibility, which has typically been Africa and the Caribbean, you know, you probably need to speak French. So I went over to the language lab over at the special forces school over at SWIC and found an instructor who would give me a crash course in French. So I studied French for about three or four weeks, um, just enough to get a zero plus to get assigned into third group. And then one of the guys knew a battalion commander over there, and they sent a BNR uh, by name request for me. So I got a really interesting conversation from uh, office invite from the commandant asking who I knew because I just got BNR'd into first battalion third group, and I just. I told him the truth, you know, Hey, I just know this guy from church and he's like, all right, well, (laughs) you're going. And the guy's name, the guy's name was Tim Slimp. And he's like six foot three from Tennessee. Just, you know, one of these, like if John Wayne had been reincarnated, that's what this guy would have been like. And everybody loved him. He was a no BS kind of guy. And, everything he did was about, you know, getting the job done and taking care of the soldiers. And, um, so I get this call maybe a week before I graduated the Q course. We hadn't even gotten our berets yet. And I had my little, I had it for a long time and I, I don't know whatever happened to it. I had a little, like one of the first little mini Nokia phones that came out. Mm-hmm. And it goes off in class one day, and this guy says, hey, who is this? I said, hey, this is uh, Captain Bradley. I'm over at SWIC. And he goes, this is uh, Master Sergeant Lubers. I'm the team sergeant for ODA 331. When can we talk? I said, Sergeant, I'm not even graduated yet. He said, I didn't ask you that. He said, when, you, when can you talk? I said, <laughs> I can meet you for lunch tomorrow. He said, okay, meet me out at range 33. Bring your vehicle, bring some field fatigues I'm like okay i show up we get on a, a vehicle they have some kid from the support company drive my truck back to base we're back onto main base and all the other team members are in the truck and i'm like well where are we going they say hey you went you were in the 75th for a little while and you know you did this and this and this you pretty familiar with cqb and cqm right i said yeah clear room clear building said, okay, well, we're going to be the, uh, we're supposed to be the CENTCOM Cree for this next mission, and we don't get the mission unless we get certified as a DA team in the shoot house, even though you haven't been to SODIC or Sephardic, so we're going to give you a crash course. We get out to the range, (laughs) and we're literally loading ammo and putting on body armor, and the battalion commander shows up, and he looks at me, and of course, I'm still, you know, I still got my SWIC stuff on, just field uniform and uh he calls team sergeant over has a few words looks at him 
kind of stern. He walks back. Sergeant Luber says, uh, hey, battalion commander said, uh, make sure you don't mention this to anybody. But uh, <laughs> if you go through, if, if, if you if you manage to get certified, because, you know, you had to be, you had to have an assault one commander and assault two uh, commander, and then you had to have your uh, support by your local support by fire, and you had to have deep support by fire. But you had to be able to show that you could do either the leadership in all three of those or all four of those positions. But you also had to be able to do C two because you didn't know how the team was going to break up in a configuration if you're doing a rate unilateral rate or whatever. So come to find out, I mean, I didn't even have my beret yet, and we were doing room clearing, getting certified for the team to get their validation because I graduated two weeks later, we were to, I was assigned to my team and we were deployed. Hmm. It happened that quick, fast. So another quick turnaround for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that'd be what, 2004, 2005? 2005. 2005. So Iraq was in full swing at that time too. The, so you guys were going over to Afghanistan and all the all the attention was being focused on Iraq. So what what was that like for you like to show up back in Kandahar again, second trip? And You know the yeah. the funny thing was is we knew in 2002 like when they started cutting our ammo rations short mm. because they were planning the invasion of Iraq and they were going to divert some of our resources in Afghanistan. We knew it was coming. We knew it was a true viability. And then by the time I got there in 2005. I think we, uh, Task Force 31, went over there with 16 ODAs to cover the whole country. And literally, that's all we had. We had, I think it was either 15 or 16 ODAs and one brigade from um, the 173rd over in Italy. Colonel Owens Mm -hmm. was battalion commander. And the thing was is that we worked so well together that we had a, I mean, that's one of the things that Colonel Shinshaw talked about in the book. He said there was a period of time when like the Taliban said they couldn't take a piss and we wouldn't show up and hit them. And, um, things were, things were frustrating, but the dynamic was completely different. You could not drive through a village and didn't feel like a rock star. Like, People would hear about you coming word of mouth and you would be driving up some dirt road or through the middle of town and people would come out and wave. And Mm. I mean, they just treated you like a rock star. And it was a weird feeling to be that well received among them. Mm. I don't know how to explain it, but um, a lot of our, our resources were, you know, were shortened. Um, a lot of our capabilities were shortened and that was part of the, the problem, if you will, was that we were left instead of doing SF stuff, instead of doing UW and counterinsurgency and foreign internal defense and being a force multiplier and developing their army, which is what we started doing in 2005. We trained the first battalion from, um, second Kandak, the, uh, 205th Corps, I think. And um, we didn't have a lot to work with, but what we had, um, because everything we did, we mutually supported each other. 
along the ODAs. And um, it was a wild west, man. It was it was something. I mean, did you guys operate out of fire bases? Were you you know in and out of Kandahar? What was kind of your your operational situation on on that tour? In yeah, we were at um, probably the most famous fire base in all of Afghanistan. It had been Mullah Omar's compound. Uh, mm-hmm. It was called Firebase Gecko, mm-hmm. and um, we had some neighbors living with us. Um, that we worked very closely with, and um, I, I, know, I know those guys. I've worked with yeah, those guys. <laughs> I think they've figured proud of it. And um, we just Good had food, a great, at least. we had a great working relationship um, with those guys, and um, it was funny because we had the only swimming pool in the whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, the compound itself, about three hundred meters to the northeast of it, was an underground series of bunker complexes so it was a very fortified properly built Mm -hmm. uh military compound and home for mullah omar but it was built by osama bin laden for him as a if people know anything about the history of the taliban and al-qaeda they had some pretty significant political and religious disagreements and in order to sway that favor, Bin Laden had a very robust, nice, miniature type palace built for uh, Mullah Omar. And that was where we operated out of for four or five rotations. Well, it's funny. They recently declassified um, information about the invasion of Afghanistan. And one of the things they declassified was that the longest air assault in history actually took place in the opening days of the war to that same, to, you know, Gecko slash Mahalik when Delta 160th flew out all the way from Pakistan, flew all the way to that compound, hit it, and then they like dropped flyers all over so that they knew that they could hit them there. And then they yeah. flew back because, you know, the Taliban didn't think they could get them there because it was so far away from where they were. And they did this like crazy night mission, flew in. They didn't get anything because nobody was there. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, you know, kind of plopping your dick on the desk and being like, look, we, we can get you anywhere. And then they just left. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think it was the same night they hit uh, Rhino and they took Canada, the yes. uh, mm-hmm. Third Ranger Battalion seized uh, Kandahar Airfield. But I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure, yeah, that was Alpha Squadron that went in there and because when we got there, there was still holes in the motor pool roof from where Spectre had you know, yeah, had plunked it up, and um, you think about how 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 much effectiveness our enablers and our combat power had because when you would go up to that bunker complex, which was built completely in granite, mm-hmm. there were four entrances and exits at all cardinal directions, and they had put a J dam right into the entrance of each one of those. And um, it was a pretty cool place to cut your teeth. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Mm. Now, was it was it on this tour or on your previous tour that you first heard of this place called Panjway? What was what was your your formal introduction? I guess we, we probably should have covered that on your first deployment, but I didn't. I was so well, enthralled Panjway by the story. Panjway was one of Panjway in the Spear Wangar area is one of the places that was like um, that was like the boogie land. Mm-hmm. Um, that and the area between where Anaconda and Cobra were and mm-hmm. Tarrant when you come down the old Tarrant Road and cut through mm-hmm. um, 
not the shoe guard pass, but um, that big, anyway, I can't think of the name. I'll think of the name of it in a minute. The, the big pass, mountain pass that divides northern Kandahar and southern Aruzgan. Yes, and, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know, you'd drive through there and it was like driving along the Furlong Pass when we first got there. There's like abandoned Russian tanks and vehicles all over mm-hmm. the place where they'd just been, you know, swacked by the 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 Mooj. And um, we were constantly doing sweep, clear, hold missions. So a lot of what we were doing was constantly doing things that we knew that the enemy would not expect. So instead... Mm. Like instead of we started out going out for three days, five days, 10 days, 12 day reconnaissance missions where we would just move from village to village to village trying to sweep large areas and find pockets of resistance. And, uh, you know, we worked very closely with some of the other federal agencies and the FBI and stuff trying to find, you know, domestic threats. Um, we had a couple of, uh, Gitmo guys, one that we captured and one that we killed that were the catch and release that ended up back on the battlefield. Um, but Spear One Gar was one of those places that, like, we knew the history of it. We knew that uh, three of Mullah, you know, Argandab was where I think two of Mullah Omar's wives were from, and another one was from Spear One Gar or one of the other. So he had a significant personal presence there familial and um we had ridden through there a couple of times and even in some of the really dangerous remote places we went into that over on the packy border and stuff where you would drive into a village and you would have dozens of guys in black standing on top of on top of all the compounds Right, and you just are expecting contact at any moment, but they know who you are, and they're right. not going to tangle with you. They 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 know because they call our trucks porcupines because of all the guns that were bristling off. I mean, every 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 gun truck that you have in SF has the same or more firepower of an entire infantry platoon. Right. So, you know, you got two or three two forties, two or three, <laughs> you know, saws. You know, multiple grenade launchers, not to mention, you know, RPGs, 60 millimeter, 81 millimeter mortars, you know, laws rockets, AT4s, Mark 19s, 50 cal. I mean, anything, and we even added stuff for the A&A. We made our own technicals because in those early rotations, we didn't have gun trucks and we didn't have up armored vehicles. We did almost everything out of Hilux trucks. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is awesome and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> it absolutely is, and we did a you know a lot of a lot of the stuff that we did had to be in modified uniforms. So you had to have like all the you know everybody had to have something uniformed. Everybody had sure. to have the same pants or the same boots or whatever. But you would wear civilian clothes, and you, you had to do it because you're in such close proximity to the civilians and the enemy that. You know, typically when you made contact, it was either at 400 meters or more or right. 20 meters or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, but we, we, we were hearing that there was a lot of stuff that was going on um, intel-wise in Spear Wangar. But at the time, there were some of the other – there was 
because of our sweep clear hold mission, mm-hmm. we were focusing on areas farther outside of Kandahar where it the intelligence kind of pointed to groups of Taliban that were either or you know or Hig or Haqqani or Al Qaeda that were either trying to you know make their way back in or that were laying low there. Uh, trying to consolidate and reorganize sort of stuff. So I, we knew about it, but it wasn't what it ended up being a year from then because the trigger for everything was after we did the in brief to Secretary Rumsfeld and they turned the entire Afghan mission over to ISAF control right. that the mission then became stability operations not maintaining security and a lot of what the canadians had trouble with was they were being expected to go out and do all these security and stability operate or excuse me stability operations you know rebuilding schools and roads and all this hand holding stuff and then they would be trying to do a medic a med cap or you know build a hospital or something and they're getting ambushed and they're not being authorized to get in the fight the way that they want to fight. Right. So, yeah. So it sounds, it sounds like your mission kind of mirrored what the Canadians were doing prior to Medusa two, which was, you know, they were all over the place, but they never really had a home. You know, it was, yep. you know, they'd be out for a couple, couple weeks at a time. And, you know, like you said, do some stability operations, maybe do a couple operations in one area, then they'd pack up their labs and they'd go to the next spot or they'd right. go back to calf, rearm, refuel and rotate out with somebody else. Um, kind of seems to me like in those days, you know, the big fobs were, were home, you know, mm-hmm. you, just, you just didn't have the sprawling network of you know, miniature fobs and refueling bases and cops and outposts and, um, you know, which is what the, the reality was for us in 2012. I mean, you couldn't piss without, you know, peeing on an Afghan checkpoint or a, you know, coalition cop. Well, we were still running. I mean, we were still operating out of fire bases and like safe houses up until late September or probably early 2007. Um, the integration of a lot more coalition forces and then conventional forces is what changed the dynamic. Sure. Um, on the ground to start putting in more of those checkpoints and trying to establish a lot more security. But, um, in those, I mean, in those early years, there was nothing. And all we really had, the, the, the thing that bothered me as it's like everything came full circle. So what I started to see in 2012, when we designed and implemented me and Jim Gant went in as the first, very first two people, Uh, to begin conducting village stability operations. So we were living in a district center in, you know, Afghanistan, most of the time, not even on a local fire base, like only being protected by our Afghan police or security forces, people that we had. But what we were doing was um, like, alone and unafraid sort of out there living in the districts with the people day to day and that kind of immersion and alignment of forces was what worked in a place like Afghanistan. And what happens, we started that way and then we got away from it and big army thought that they could do counterinsurgency 
and all the services and everybody does some type of it. But, you know, the important piece when I when I teach counterinsurgency today, it's like teaching somebody to play chess. You got offense and defense. You got kinetic and non-kinetic. Well, the non-kinetic is how you win. Right. Mm-hmm. But you got to balance that equally with kinetic operations as you degrade in a trip the enemy and the support of the people you know you got to you got to you got to strangle other. the enemy out of it and um so for example we would have one time like one of our first missions in 2002 in Afghanistan, like one of my biggest challenges was trying to keep these guys resupplied because they were in safe houses in these super remote locations in Shkin and Lawara over on the Pakistani border, you know, Kandahar, Spin Bulldog. And you've got a platoon of infantry from 82nd, 101st, 10th Mountain, but they're there and they belong to that SF team. So, it's easier to do your mission when you have somebody, when you have actual, you know, forces to help you pull security, you know, because we, at that point, we had not been able to work with and train the Afghans. Most people's experiences with the Afghans are completely different than mine because the Afghans that we worked with year after year after year, I mean, they adopted us into their tribes. You know, we knew their families. I mean, we, stayed in touch with them when we went home. Um, That's why a lot of how we all feel about getting the interpreters and their families and stuff out of Afghanistan was such so prolific was the relationships that we built because we saw the sacrifice that a lot of them were making for their own country. Right. And nobody Mm -hmm. else wanted to recognize that. I just want to write them off. Right. And um, I mean, that's one thing that we talked about earlier was the difference between your your relationship with the Afghan National Army and ours, you know, yeah. yours were local can were local to to the south at least. You know, ours were from the north. They were they were Uzbeks and Tajiks. They they didn't really have any kind of connection. And and you mentioned that that was something that that changed. And we'll I guess we we'll probably should save that to the second part of the episode. But <laughs> um, you know that that's I think that was a, a critical part of the relationship you had in the in the first couple of points mm-hmm. at least. It is critical because when I talk about um, I talk about some of the individuals in the book, um, I don't know if they're alive or not. I don't want to use their names, but one of them was an Afghan soldier that had been badly wounded in an IED. Um, mm-hmm. He he basically had, I mean, was left for dead. An 18 Delta treated him managed to save his life. He ended up keeping both of his legs, even though he was pretty disabled, but he was the guy that I would buy the sneakers for that had like the white Pepsi t-shirt. And he commanded the respect of all of the other Afghan soldiers that we worked with. And I mean, if it took him two hours to get up a mountain, everybody waited for him to get up there. Right. But when we got there, it was on like Donkey Kong, but they, we did everything together. We, I mean, because I ruffled some feathers, but we moved our A and A into parts of our camp where we lived with them, talked with them, briefed them, did operations with them. Um, I mean, you have to learn to coexist and trust, and that's also, I think, in a lot of ways, how we 
always were able to prevent because we had our shares of frictions uh, with A and A just like everybody else did, but there was never a they did a good job. Let's just say we empowered them to police themselves. So there was a couple of times when we caught dudes talking on cell phones or ICOM radios. Right. Uh, but they didn't usually last very long. If they came in with new recruits or whatever, uh, they get sniffed out pretty quickly, and then they just disappear in the middle of the night. I don't know if they went AWOL <laughs> or what, but they went it away. Definitely Stuff went like that happens on places like It's a dangerous place, Gecko. man. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. Oh, yeah, strange. Yeah. yeah, the Pashtuns have a saying, two men walk in the desert and one man walks back. <laughs> Yeah. That's a good one. That one should be yeah. on t-shirt somewhere. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that'll be on our next Panjoy podcast t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that that dynamic with the with the living on the base and the the relationship. And the only other time I've seen that was uh, in Coast in 2017. Was the was the relationship between the the CIA and uh, the Coast Provincial Force. Um and that's just the way that they were so intertwined. Now, there's all kinds of criticism there as well. I'm sure it was, you know, everything that it deserved. But, you know, the KPF were an exceptional fighting force, far better than anything that I'd worked with in the country. And it was literally because they were there and they trained and they lived there. And it was it was one, it was, a, it was a very symbiotic relationship with the Americans as opposed to what we had in 2012, which was kind of like dragging them out of bed to go on a mission and not an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, our partners had the same thing. Um, they had, um, they had people that they worked with and, and that was what I was kind of alluding to without mentioning the particular people, people. uh, the agency, <laughs> but, um, we had, we had pretty decent relationship with them, but the frictions would come in because they were, a lot of them ended up being the first like special forces units um, because they had so much training, you know, yes. a yeah. lot of them had, um, we would run them through selection courses and like guys that would be able to navigate with a map and compass or read a GPS or, you know, you could teach them surveillance, counter surveillance, special weapons, you know, actually engaging targets at night under nods, um, stuff like that. There was a little bit of friction with our A&A because we didn't have those capabilities for the A&A. And plus those guys got paid a lot more. So right. they had that sense of esprit de corps and elitism with us. Um, but they, you know, monetarily, it caused a lot of friction. And of course, we had to keep them separated on the camp because, you know, it's like, you know, our team against your team sort of thing. And we'd go out on an operation and come in. And if they'd be leaving the camp, you know, who's, you know, who's got the biggest crank, who's going to, you know, and right. I think probably that first year in 2005, I, walked into more Mexican standoffs. I'm, I'm, I clearly must have been on drugs or something because nobody in their right mind would walk into, you know, but it's just one of those things where cooler heads sometimes prevailed and you just got to walk in and, you know, if you can tell them that I'm shot, I'm shot, you know, calm, just calm down for a second and a while to yeah. listen to me and um, talk it through. And then, Hey, you guys put your vehicles over here and then our guys will take our vehicles over here to the right. And then right. we'll all go, take a bath and 
you know, get a right. decent meal and decent night's sleep and live to see So I guess that day. would be kind of like the origins of the Afghan commandos then. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I've got, and, I've got, a, I've got an Afghan commando shirt somewhere in one of my tough boxes that doesn't Oh, that's cool. Anymore. I don't even have one of those. <laughs> oh, they were selling yeah. them at the bazaar in Panjway when we were there in 2012. Oh, really? Knockoff, knockoff yeah. Afghan commando shirts in the bazaar. Yeah, it's like you know going to freaking I guess going to Virginia Beach and buying a SEAL t-shirt. I guess that's the, the oh yeah well, of that. <laughs> <laughs> or or going to Fort Bragg and buying a SF t-shirt or something. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, hey, that, there's probably not those aren't gonna be made anymore in Afghanistan. That's for sure. So no, I guess not anytime uh, soon. It's good memorabilia. Um. So, I mean, you do the 2005 deployment, which by all all accounts, you know, very dynamic, very active. Doesn't seem like you were bored very much. Um, definitely a, a big welcome to the SF community. How long between that one and moving on to uh, Medusa or to, to the 2006 deployment? Okay, so pretty much our, our rotation on the ribbon chart was six months in, six months out. Okay, so um, you can pretty much reliably know you got six months off. And then... Yep, and that is your pattern of life. And essentially, even the way that that broke down is you always would do two to three weeks. You'd do a PDSS like two months out, and then you, you would go in. Uh, all the leadership would go in two weeks early, and then you would stay mm-hmm. two weeks later to do your left seat, right seat ride with the ODAs that you traded out with. And then you came home and you did 45 days of refit and recovery and then, and leave block leave two weeks of block leave. And then you immediately started individual training, um, mission and area specific training, then your team training and all your collective training. And then you did your FTXs and all your validation certifications and you're heading right back in the box. So we did that on and off for till 2012 and did you know that you would be going back to kandahar or did they did they rotate the teams around at all or was there yeah a lot of teams some of the uh yes and no depending upon who the battalion commander or the group commander was uh, a lot of us fought rigidly to allow odas to go back to those fire bases because right. there is an inherent knowledge base right. of mm-hmm. the area, the people, the tribes, and it's so dynamic and it's so convoluted. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand it, I mean, you could take you, off on, you know, units took off all the time. Uh, you know, they would put like that happened to one of the MSOT teams. I mean, the guys had never been in there and, they took over a new re, uh, a new district, and when they did, they went right up the road that everybody knew was IED'd, but because, you know, because right. they hadn't been there and there was no continuity between the other team that was new there as well, mm-hmm. we were able to, in some cases, convince the commands that guys need to go back to those inherent habitual locations to maintain that continuity Right. And in the, it's the stuff that I read and the things that I saw, um, we were extremely successful when even when you had an attrition rate of about 30 percent on the ODAs, about every two or three rotations, you're still able to maintain that knowledge base when you go into a place versus, you know, ending up, you know, one of one of the biggest spikes and casualties we had was around 2000 
I think, 10 or 11 when 7th Group came in, took over all RC South missions, and 3rd Group got pushed up to uh, RC East. Hmm. Well, you know, because we had always rotated in and out with 7th Group, and then when they started putting 1st Group and 10th Group in the mix uh, from Iraq, then, you know, guys weren't going back to their same regional specialties Mm. and you had you had a lot you had a pretty significant spike in a lot of things that were were negative and it was it's difficult because you know we had built relationships like one of the reasons that the the ana structure fell apart was because by uh, the end of 2007, they were taking the ANA that had all, like for the past four and a half years, had been working with only SF teams. And we made sure they got paid. They didn't get screwed over by their commanders or their mm-hmm. tribal leaders or any of the Afghan generals, the ANA generals. Um, we made sure that they were fed. They were properly equipped. I actually got in trouble one time because when the Ford Rangers first came out, I found out that the general was sitting on like 150 of them. And most of most of our Toyotas were rental trucks, and they were all beat up and run down. And I called two or three times asking for the vehicles, and they wouldn't give them up. So we did what any good SF team did. We were Quite pissed, them. and we took about a platoon worth of A&A pipe hitters and loaded up, <laughs> and we drove to the A&A base right outside of Kandahar Airfield. And I walked in the general's or the the general's aide's office, and I pulled up the box of 150 brand new sets of Ford Ranger keys, mm-hmm. and we married up the first 10 trucks that we could find with the keys, and we put fuel in them and drove them up to the firebase. Needless to say, two days later, I got an, a visit, but uh, <laughs> I got my trucks. You got your trucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that possessions nine right. tenths of the law. You're Afghan. You should know that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Come and take it. Come yeah, get them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought. I think they they thought they were going. I mean, I don't know. They they're they're very good at. They're masters of interpersonal dynamics. They may not have a college degree, but they'll outsmart you your own game. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. And you know, double agents, triple agents, people working for people, working for people. I mean, and somehow they managed to balance it at all because it's all so rudimentary over there. Um, yeah, they've been doing it for 45 years. They're professionals, mm-hmm. you know. 4,500. Well, I mean, that's why they call it the graveyard of the empire. 4,500 years. Because <laughs> everybody that went in there didn't understand the people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when the 06 deployment comes down, you guys, you know, you show up, you're back at Gecko and you're stomping around. How long were you there before all the Medusa stuff started to get spun, uh, spun up? Well, a good friend of mine named Chef Ford, I had traded out with him from my rotation in 05 to early 06. Mm -hmm. And then he was in, uh, in my, or we shared a seat. He was in the detachment commander's uh, position out of Gecko. And uh, they had been getting all of the intel reflections and all of the like, holy crap, something really big is going on or going to happen in Kandahar. So th- they sent a group of our interpreters into Posh- the Poshmool Valley or in the Poshmool District because w- they knew that there was a high-level Taliban meeting. They had come up through the Rig Desert 
mm-hmm. and were holding some big meeting there. Well, they tried to get the interpreters in there and the interpreters got caught. I think somebody had a weapon or a GPS or something. They made it through. We know that they made it through one checkpoint. They made it through a second checkpoint, and then they went completely dark for a day and a half. And then one of one of our intel resources said that there's some mutilated bodies um, in Pashmul near the mosque. And that was our guys. So Chef's team and their ETTs and their ANA put together Operation Kaika, which is like revenge. Mm-hmm. And they went in there and what they didn't know was that there was at least 300 insurgents that were in there to protect that meeting. Mm-hmm. And they had rings of security. So when they drove across the uh, Argandab River, from like the, you know, I'm telling in my mind, I can see it, but they went from uh, the south through the Panjway Bazaar, cut past Masum Gar, and drove up to where the, in, eventually the Canadians had the big battle at the White Schoolhouse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's where they went to the target compounds. I had to think they had like three or four target compounds that they went to and they just got shot to pieces. Well, the, the ISAF forces, the Canadians were supposed to be QRF and them deployed from Kandahar and made it to the South side of the river. And they would not QRF them. They could not get permission to QRF them. And they had already had, they had three killed, um, at least six or seven guys wounded, probably a half dozen ANA killed. They had been surrounded, uh, ran out of ammo and, I'd have to let Chef tell you the exact story, but I just remember they they managed to use one of the lieutenants that I talk about, Lieutenant Ali. Um, he was actually a Hazara, I think he was a Hazara officer mm-hmm. and had been somebody that they picked on, but in this particular battle, he managed to rally about 10 or 12 of the Afghans with a couple of the SF guys, and they went and were able to push the insurgents back enough to recover the bodies. And then they got some casts on station and that allowed them to exfil. Well, of Mm. course I deploy. And the first thing I do is I walk into the bee hut where he is. And I could tell he was regretting having to do his in brief with me. And he was just overwhelmed with emotion. And, um, he just said, don't go back in there without an army, man. He said, I've been trying to tell um, Eikenberry at the time, I think, was the uh, U.S. ambassador. And I put it in the book. At one point, um, Eikenberry was sitting with Karzai in a briefing when the RC South commander, General Richardson and Colonel Bulldog, and then went up to brief him and said, hey, we we know for a fact that there's hundreds of fighters coming across the border to push into Panjway and we need to uh, do a large scale operation. And uh, at the time, somebody threw out like 12 or 1500 insurgents in this valley. And Eikenberry said, well, there's not that many Taliban in the whole country. And he tried to write it off. And eventually one of the Afghan generals convinced Karzai that you know, we need to do this operation to it if for nothing else to confirm or deny, but we need to go in with a big enough presence that if we do run into anything, we can deal with it. And right. 
make it done. And that's how pretty much Operation Medusa was started, was off the back of Chef's mission where those guys got chewed up. And um, the Canadians were going to go in and sweep the whole northern portion of the Panjoy Valley, I guess, with armored vehicles. And um, they drove right into, well, I, I get into all that later but. yeah <laughs> well, i mean that's what that's what that's what kind of fascinating about the the plan for medusas it never really involved the horn of panjway it always involved everything north of the horn in what's yes. now zari you know they were so worried about i guess because you know highway one is up there which makes sense but you know they were it's like they were surprised at the the fighting that you guys experienced eventually at spurwangar because they weren't even it was never even they were even planned to go in there no, absolutely not. And that was like, if this thing ever plays out to be a movie, I mean, it'll be, it, it's in, it's crazy because when we did our infiltration up from the Rig Desert, we drove all the way down to Packy Bet and then, you know, drove up through the Rig Desert. And the first place we came to, I, I mean, that was a doggone safari adventure right there. Yeah. Like crossing oh, yeah. the Mojave Desert in five days mm-hmm. uh, without the right vehicles. And, um, we came out and there was a little enclave in this village that looked like a Taliban talk. I mean, there was literally antennas sticking out of the top of this building. I don't know, six or eight, you know, mm. FM antenna, like, you know, cell phone antenna, like a myriad, like that ain't, that ain't a bizarre. So no, we no. decided to go pay him a visit. And, um, they saw us coming from a distance, you know, probably 30 or four of them jumped on motorbikes and took off. But that was where Riley found the notebook. And it had the names of about, I don't remember the math, but it had the names and phone numbers and the numbers of fighters. So it had Taliban subcommanders and the number of fighters. Hmm. Well, when we sent that up, they were kind of like, hmm. We don't know if we really believe this. Now, I don't, you know, I don't know what you need to see to prove it. But right. when we started looking at the battlefield, you know, how would we do this? How would we set it up if, I, if we were fighting the Russians or you know, whatever, and um, draw them into a fight, either on the north or the south side? But you got to have, you know, all the, you know, Clausewitz doesn't leave any operation. You got to have, you know, you got offense, you got defense, you got to be able to move, shoot and communicate. So they got to have a C2 somewhere. We knew that they had some foreign fighters in there. We knew that for a fact. We had heard some high-sided, had Arabic voices, Chechenian voices, Sudanese, Yemeni, radio intercepts, cell phone intercepts. So we knew that this was Pakistani ISI. Shocker, right? Yeah, shocker. And um, they were the ones coordinate this, and that's why it kept evolving to be something bigger than, you know, a bunch of groups of people just trying to ambush you and right. uh-huh. spray and pray. So then we looked at, you know, where would you put a reserve force? Where would you put the C2? Well, if I was, was going to C2 this, I'd put a C2 down in the horn. Well, guess what? Mushan ended up being the C2 and right. Spear One Gar ended up being like 
the high ground and observation, but that, that was where they had the reserve force. So they were waiting for the Canadians to task force to cross the river. And then as they progressed from east to west on the north side of the river, the reserve force was going to come in and hit them from the flank or from the rear. Yeah. Right. And, um, it just seems so naive of the Canadians to not even think of that. Like that entire well, a lot area of it wasn't the Canadians. I mean, like even General Richardson, who was the ISAF commander, um, and I'm trying to think of the name of the RC South commander. He was, um, I think he was Dutch, but um, somebody from higher echelon ISAF and the embassy was the one that were I think that was putting the brakes on them, because the night before the Canadians were supposed to go in. Um, my friend Andy, who was the recce company commander for the battle group, you know, the recce company was prepared to move in in four or five elements, move forward, get eyes on the enemy targets, mark them for artillery and casts, and they were never allowed to do that. General mm-hmm. Richardson or whomever the RC South commander was ordered to press the attack. Hmm. And Andy and I talked about that number n- number of times, mm-hmm. and even the, like the task force commander, I, I to this day, I mean, I I know he he told us he was ordered to do it, and nobody yeah. does. I mean, you know, you always do a reconnaissance, right? Ma- well, even if it's a map reconnaissance, satellite reconnaissance, you always do a reconnaissance. But they had the ability to move forward and get eyes on with their capabilities, whether it was scouts, lurch team, you know soft guys whatever and they were told hey you're going in in the morning this idea to travel across the ridge and set up that blocking position just south of the horn how did that kind of come about i know i know in the book it you know there was yeah i figured it was you (laughs) (laughs) it was a rhetorical question rusty gosh (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you for feeding me that one that was good (laughs) but you know like you know obviously I know in the book there was some talk about like we want to get you want to get SF involved in this mission. We think the Canadians are in a little bit over the head. We need to be postured there to help, um, or at least you know be able to watch the carnage. I guess I don't know, um, but you know it makes complete sense to put a blocking position right on the edge of the edge of the Registan Desert. But why did you want to drive across it? <laughs> well, the thing was is that was the that was the most. The, essentially to be able to use cover and concealment if mm-hmm. remember i talked about going trying to travel from kanahar airfield not long after we got there to firebase gecko mm-hmm. when sheffield's fords guys were escorting us and we ran across several groups yes. of taliban personnel in the street that had not been linked up with their commanders or with weapons Right. But I mean, it was so clearly obvious who they were. So we already had those inklings that this was not normal. Like there was something else going on. And another right. thing we didn't talk about at the time was that that, that uh, high side intelligence had captured the cell phone call from Mullah Dadullah Lang promising to Mullah Omar that he would have Kandahar taken by Christmas or New Year. Mm. Right. So we knew that there was immense pressure 
we just weren't seeing the, we were getting all the intelligence of it happening. Um, you know, all these literally groups of insurgents walking around the villages with their weapons and uh, everything else. These large meetings going on between Taliban commanders and sub-commanders. And um, ultimately, we believed that because we knew the Rig Desert was a way that they would infiltrate and exfiltrate or to do resupply because it wasn't heavily patrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a it was a gap in our capability. You need an army to control it. <laughs> yeah. It's so yeah. massive. Well, I mean, and there, there's a couple of places like that little mountain range that we ran into. You can see it on the map, but that's in, down there in the Rig Desert. And what the insurgents would do is they would come across a border and they would get linked up with their heavy weapons and stuff because we found those rock faces where they had dozens over a hundred impacts from RPGs and recoilless rifles and everything else mm-hmm. that they would either test fire the weapons or they would, you know, do weapon instruction down there in that little mountain range. But it was just literally jagged rocks sticking up and you had to get climbing equipment to, to get up there. So if we were going to be, I mean, they wanted initially the, participation to be extremely limited and focus on killing or capturing the insurgent leadership that tried to leak out of the valley. Right. Now, we all knew that if they went anywhere, they would go to the Hillmond. Right. They wouldn't yeah. go through the reek. So when I talked with Bruce Scullion and Dave Hodges, we we're like, well, you know, what's the best way to come in the back door on these guys and close the South and then that leaves all of Highway 1 for the coalition or the task force to be able to secure and prevent these guys from getting over into Bandy Timor or over into Helmand. And um, that was why I came up with, well, let's take two ODAs and we'll skirt the border and we'll actually jump on one of the, the Taliban insurgent routes because they don't mind their own roads coming across the border. Right. And that's how we figured we would get up through the desert and then we would be postured in all the blocking positions. So when the Canadians initiated their assault, we would be in position to either a kill or capture as our primary mission or B to support the Canadian task force if they needed it. So was helicopters ever discussed or considered, or was it just too high, high profile, high visibility? Um, you know, that's funny because I don't really remember. I think at the t- we always had an issue with rotary wing lift, rotary wing resupport, and rotary wing QRF. Uh, rotary wing is the, the only and primary way besides horseback or on a foot with donkey to, to get mobility in that country. Um, I don't honestly think that there was enough aircraft in the theater mm-hmm. to support okay this type of a large scale operation. We already knew there wasn't enough when they did Anaconda. So they never had enough. Um, And you got to remember that at this time, there's also a lot of other kinetic supporting operations that are going on. So it made more sense for us and gave us the future mobility. Mm. If we took the vehicles and the ATVs to cut through the rig desert with little or no detection and then occupy our blocking positions uh, 
on the morning that they assaulted because of the distance between where the mountain range was, where our blocking positions were, and where the Canadians were assaulting was probably another right. 10 or 15 kilometers of yeah, um, of, of village complexes. Mm-hmm. And it's just a yeah. labyrinth. It, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm glad that you guys chose to do this because you get this wonderful story of, you know, 20 vehicles trying to cross <laughs> the Sahara, you know. I mean, I feel I mean like it's just, in, it's like straight out of an Indiana Jones. When, yeah, when the movie is made and you know, the open scene, it's just gun trucks bouncing across the sand dunes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And you had, I mean, it, it's funny because I, I don't think about this stuff until I have a conversation with somebody. But I mean, we had every imaginable. We had to stop at one point and teach the ANA how to drive those trucks in the sand. Like we had to yeah. stop a combat operation and put on a driving class. Not mm-hmm. a joke. I, um, that and, doesn't and, surprise me at all. But it, we I would, mean, it worked. And then yeah. <laughs> after we did that, I mean, you had like one of the, you know, you would always tell the ANA, they put their hands over their AK and put their head over their gun. I'm like, please make them take their head and their hands off because you know it's an open bolt weapon system so as soon as that truck bounces sure enough i think we were two days into it one of the a and a blew a hole like spade his hand <laughs> wide open riding an ak in the back of the truck mm-hmm. but i mean oh my god the the point where we stopped the camels with the guy who was the son-in-law or, or whatever or the future son-in-law taking all the camels to pay for his future wife's dowry or whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, I've got a picture of the A setting up shelters and they were taking RPG rounds and sticking the heads into the sand <laughs> and then tying a poncho to it. I can't make this up. I mean, I'm a creative dude, but. <laughs> oh man. So you guys are adventuring across the ridge and then you get into your blocking position. So day one, Shit starts going down with the Canadians. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.